0: Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we. This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, Season 2. This is a weekly podcast that follows my study of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each week, I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. This curriculum can be found online at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more fun, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Please note, episodes of The Savior Said are not meant to replace your Come Follow Me experience, but to supplement your own personal study of the scriptures. Hey guys, welcome back. This is the episode for October 19th through 25. 3rd Nephi 27 through 4th Nephi, and There Could Not Be a Happier People is the title of the episode. We're gonna talk about how they were so happy and most impressively that they were happy for so long. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that. But before we get started, I wanted to give a big thank you to Samoan Gypsy for her review on iTunes this week. Um, such kind words. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And if you feel like the Savior said has touched your life, I would encourage you to go leave a review on iTunes. It helps others find the Savior said when they're looking for a Come Follow Me podcast. So go check that out. Okay, but let's get into the episode. So this week, the introduction says, the teachings of Jesus Christ are not just a beautiful philosophy to ponder. Although they are that I do really like the philosophy behind the teachings of Jesus Christ. But And Come Follow Me goes on with this. They are much more than that. They are meant to change our lives. The book of 4th Nephi provides a stunning example of this, illustrating just how thoroughly the Savior's gospel can transform a people. Following Jesus' brief ministry, centuries of contention between the Nephites and Lamanites came to an end. Okay, pause there. So how many years were the Nephites and Lamanites fighting? How many years before Christ came? It was a really long time. And then all of a sudden with his visit, it completely changed. And we're going to talk a little bit about what happened after he came. Two nations known as for their dissension and pride became one, the children of Christ. And they began to have all things in common among them. The love of God did dwell in the hearts of the people. And there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. This is how the Savior's teaching changed the Nephites and Lamanites. How are the Savior's teachings changing you? And that's how they end the introduction and come follow me. How are the Savior's teachings changing you? And I started thinking about that. And I was like, how are they changing me? Because, you know, having been raised with the gospel and having known my Savior and his teachings my whole life, how does studying them change me? And I think some of the ways that it's helped change me over the past year that we've done Come Follow Me, the previous year, and also this year, is it's made me more aware of my interactions, especially with others. How am I interacting with them? How am I treating them? Am I treating them the way that Christ would want me to treat them? Am I treating them the way that Christ would treat them? Um, You know, just kind of it's, it's really made me look at my relationships with others and the way that I behave towards others and checking my own behavior and my own pride and arrogance and just kind of making me take a step back and be like, whoa, Lexi. So maybe you need to check a few of these things. So that's just some of the ways we're going to talk a little bit more, I think, as we go in depth here and come follow me. So the first section is the church of Jesus Christ is called by his name. As the Savior's disciples began establishing His church throughout the land, a question arose that to some might seem like a minor point. What should be the name of the church? And this happens in 3 Nephi 27, 1 through 3. Let's read that real quick and see, you know, what was going on. And it came to pass that as the disciples of Jesus were journeying and were preaching the things which they had both heard and seen and were baptizing in the name of Jesus, it came to pass that the disciples were gathered together and were united in mighty prayer and fasting. And Jesus again showed himself unto them, for they were praying unto the Father in his name. And Jesus came and stood in the midst of them. And he said unto them, What will ye that I shall give unto you? And they said unto him, Lord, we will that thou wouldst tell us what the name whereby we shall call this church. For there are disputations among the people concerning this matter. Okay, so I had a couple different thoughts when I read this. The first one was, is like, They were fasting and praying, but they were still having disputations because in my mind, disputation is like synonymous with contention. I don't think that it is, though. And I don't think that it is in this context. I think we can disagree with people but not be contentious with them. And I think in this particular case, maybe there were some disagreements going on, but it was done in a manner where they were trying to come to a consensus that would be best for the church and would be what their Savior wanted them to do. And so they come to him and they said, what will you that you should name the church? You know, this is what we want to know. Also interesting to me was like, why is that their one big question? Like they could literally ask him anything. And this is the big question that they want to ask him is what would you have us call Your church. Um, And then I was thinking also, I'm like, well, why are they even fighting about this? Like, or disagreeing over this? Like, why is this even a big deal? And then I remembered a few years ago when the church did the whole thing where it's like, we're not going to be Mormon anymore. We're going to be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. And the big kind of like, what? And people were complaining about it. And I, in particular, was not a big fan of the change because I'm like, you know, going from a short little phrase like Mormon to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, going through like, I don't even know how many words that is, like six or seven words. Like from a PR standpoint, that's a nightmare. From a social media handle standpoint, that's a nightmare. So I was like, that's just kind of, it's going to be really hard for the poor PR department of the church. And, but it's worth it. It's so worth it. And so they actually point us to, and come follow me, a couple different talks. And there's one that I really want to talk to and kind of quote from a little bit. It's from Russell M. Nelson, The Correct Name of the Church. And this is one I think that really this really drove home. This was 2018 that he gave this. So here we go. We just read the part about in the Book of Mormon about how they were disputing about the name of the church. So President Nelson says in his talk, As you would expect, responses to this statement and to the revised style guide have been mixed. The statement being that we are going by the name, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Many members immediately corrected the name of the church on their blogs and their social media pages. Others wondered why, with all that's going on in the world, it was necessary to emphasize something so inconsequential. And some said it couldn't be done, so why even try? So, I have to say, I was one of the dissenters in that. I was like, oh, it's just gonna be such a pain to change the branding and everything like that. Why would you even try? And that was me. Shame. Shame, Lexi. Shame. <laughs> so um, let's talk about why it's important for the correct name of the church to be correct. All right. It says in Come Follow Me. What do you learn about the importance of this name from the Savior's answer in 3 Nephi 27, 4-12? through I'm not going to read the whole thing 4-12, through but I'm going to pick out some of the verses that this week stood out to me as to why the name of the church is so important. And 5 is the first one I picked. Had they not read the scriptures which say, You must take upon you the name of Christ, which is my name? For by this name shall you be called at the last day. The reason I picked the scripture was it it tells us, you know, that we're called by the name of Christ. But I also love what he was role modeling in the situation for his, you know, I think of them as children in the gospel. Like they were, they're young in their testimonies. They're still tender. They're still learning about the gospel and how things work. And so what he's modeling here is saying, hey, you've got this question. Why don't you turn to the scriptures and see what the scriptures say? All the answers that you need when you have questions, especially when you're fighting amongst each other, turn to the scriptures and see what they say. And that's what he says. Have they not read the scriptures which say you must take upon the name of Christ, which is my name? And that's where he kind of leads them to. In 8, it says, and how be it my church shall be called in my name? For if a church be called in Moses' name, then it be Moses' church. Or if it be called in the name of a man, then it be the church of the man. But if it be called in my name, then it is my church. And if it so be that they are built upon my gospel. Okay, two things that are important there. What I think that scripture right there is the biggest reason why we need to move from the term Mormon to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because if we are the Church of Mormon, then we are the Church of a man, and we do not—I mean, Mormon's got some pretty good words, and we follow some of his words, but we are not—he's not the center of our church. You know, Jesus Christ is the center of our church, and so that's why his name needs to be front and foremost in everything that we do when we describe our church. The second part of this is, if it be called in my name, if it so be that they are built upon my gospel. So you can have a church that's called the Church of Jesus Christ, but if they are not following the gospel of Jesus Christ and not doing the things that Christ would have us do, is it really the Church of Jesus Christ? So a name is important, but also important is the substance that comes behind it, is what I see there in verse 8. Then in 9 it says, Verily I say unto you that you are built upon my gospel. Therefore, ye shall call whatsoever things you do call in my name. Therefore, if you call upon the Father for the church, if it be in my name, the Father will hear you. So I see in that verse saying, You know, you're built upon my gospel, and everything you do is in my name. And as we put Jesus's name on everything we do, we come closer to our heavenly father. And I think that's the whole role of Jesus Christ is to bring us back to our heavenly father. And when we have a church and a gospel that is built upon the gospel of Christ, the whole point of the church is to bring us back to our heavenly father. And so that's what we focus on is Christ and how his role in bringing us back to our heavenly father. President Nelson talks about this a little bit more in his talk. He says, taking the Savior's name upon us include includes declaring and witnessing to others, through our actions and our words, that Jesus is the Christ. If we as a people and as individuals are to have access to the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ, to cleanse and heal us, to strengthen and magnify us, and ultimately to exalt us, we must clearly acknowledge him as the source of that power. We can begin by calling his church by the name he decreed. So if we are clearly looking for the power of the atonement in our lives and looking to have the strength of Jesus Christ in our lives, then we follow him. And we need to reverence. I think, that following by going with the name of the church of Jesus Christ. So I think that's important. And then Come Follow Me says, in 1838, the Lord revealed the name of his church today, which is in Doctrine and Covenants 115.4, and this is what it says, for thus shall my church be called in the last days, even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Come follow me, says, ponder each word in that name. How do these words help us know who we are, what we believe, and how we should act? Well, I didn't even need to ponder each word in the name because um, M. Russell Ballard did an amazing talk where he does that for us. Okay, So he says in his talk, Let's see. What's the title of his talk? Hold on. (laughs) It's the importance of a name. And this is from November 2011. All right. So here we go. This is what he says when he breaks it down. Every word is clarifying and indispensable. The word the indicates the unique position of the restored church among the religions of the world. Okay. Pause there. So the word the is like, you know, we're not just another church of Jesus Christ. We are the church of jesus christ we are his gospel restored on the earth we are the church and that's why that word is so important even though it's probably the most commonly used word in the english language the in the title of our church is incredibly important because it singles us out as his restored gospel on the earth okay continuing on with elder ballard The words church of Jesus Christ declare that it is his church. In the book of Mormon, Jesus taught, and how be it my church, save it be called in my name? For if a church be called in Moses' name, then it be Moses' church. And if it be called in the name of a man, like Mormon, then it be the church of a man. But if it be called in my name, then it is my church. If it so be that they are built upon my gospel. Okay. Going on to of latter day explains that it is the same church as the church that Jesus Christ established during his mortal ministry, but then restored in these latter days. We know there was a falling away or apostasy necessitating the restoration of his true and complete church in our time. So of latter day saying, this is his church today. You know, this is his church restored is what we are promising here with our gospel then the last part saints which has always been the part that kind of like i i don't know bugged me the most because i'm like isn't that kind of presumptuous calling yourself saints like i don't know that was the part that's always kind of like irked me a little bit but elder ballard says this means that its members follow him and strive to do his will keep his commandments and prepare once again to live with him and our heavenly father in the future saint simply refers to those who seek to make their lives holy Covenanting to follow Christ. Okay, so and uh, Elder Ballard pick up with Lexi here. So the saint, the term saint, I think is just really always always bothered me because I feel like it's like calling ourselves holy when we are flawed, and I don't want people to come to the church expecting us all to be perfect because we very much are not. But there was a quote, I think Dieter F. Uchtdorf gave this in conference a couple years ago, but it's a quote by Nelson Mandela. And he says, I am not a saint unless you think of a saint as a sinner who keeps on trying. Now with that definition of a sinner who keeps on trying, yes, then that describes us because we are all sinners who keep on trying to follow Jesus Christ with his restored church here in the latter days. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, sinners who keep on trying. And I'm like, okay, I can make peace with that then. Okay, so going back to Come Follow Me. <laughs> so that was um, the whole point of like what's in a name. And you guys may have known all of that already, but it was really good for me to go back and like reponderize, I guess, upon it. Okay, next section in Come Follow Me. As I purify my desires, I become a more faithful disciple. What would you say if the Savior asked you, as He asked His disciples, "What is that you desire of Me?" Think about this as you read about the experience of the Savior's disciple in Third Nephi twenty-eight, one through eleven. So I thought about that this week. You know, if I could ask my Savior for anything, what would I ask Him for? And the answer I came up with was peace. I want to be able to find peace, and um. I feel like a lot of times because of the world I live in and, you know, things going on, but then also things going on internally inside my head that I struggle to find peace a lot of times. And the times where I do find peace is when I'm coming closer to him. And so I feel like he is the source of all peace and we know he is the source of all peace, but that's what I would ask him for is just a more permanent sense of peace. Um, Something that was easier to maintain, I guess, as now I feel like peace is something I fight for pretty much every day. So (laughs) I guess, does that make sense? Like I would ask that I don't have to like strive for it quite as hard, but in the like opposite part of that, I'm like, well, if I had to really struggle for peace, if I didn't have to struggle for peace, would it really be as valuable to me if I was just constantly peaceful? And I'm like, I don't know. Okay. But that's me. Putting me aside, let's go into 3 Nephi 28. It says 1 through 11. I picked out some verses, though, that kind of stuck out to me. This is where we talk about the disciples and what they asked for. So starting out in verse 2. And they all spake, save it were three, saying, We desire that after we have lived unto the age of man, that our ministry wherein thou hast called us may have an end, and we may speedily come unto thee in thy kingdom. And when he had spoken unto them, he turned himself unto the three and said unto them, What will ye that I shall do unto you when I am gone unto the Father? And three sorrowed in their hearts, for they durst not speak unto him the thing which they desired. And he said unto them, Behold, I know your thoughts, and ye have desired the thing which John my beloved, who was with me in my ministry, before that I was lifted up by the Jews, desired of me. So he knew what was in their hearts. He knew that they wanted to stay on earth. Come follow me says, what do you learn about the desires of the disciples' hearts from their answers to his question? Dallin H. Oaks taught, to achieve our eternal destiny, we will desire and work for the qualities required to become an eternal being. We will desire to become like Jesus Christ. And when I go and I look back at the desires of the Nephites, I notice that both of them wanted to spread his word, wanted to work in his ministry. like That was their desire. Um, I think nine of them said, yeah, we want to do it for a regular lifetime span and be able to do a really good job, but then we want to have rest with you, or we want to be with you after this life. Whereas you had three who were like, we want to do it, but we want to keep working at it for like ever, like a really long time. (laughs) right?" And that was their desire. So it was interesting to me that Their desire, their number one thing that they all wanted was to serve him. So then I went back to my desire and my desire was to have peace. And I'm like, how selfish kind of almost my desire was. And maybe instead I need to turn that desire outward and say, my desire is to spread peace and to be able to find the peace of Jesus Christ and then bring that peace into the lives of those around me. And that's maybe how I can turn that desire outward. So even when you're going to Christ with your very most like personal desires, being able to use those desires to bless the lives of others, I think, is kind of what I learned from their example there. Okay. What can you do to make the desires of your heart more righteous? Okay, I just talked about that. Now we get to go into the part I'm really excited about because it says for more information about the change wrought upon the bodies of the three disciples, it says see third Nephi twenty-eight thirty-seven and translated beings. So we get to talk about the three disciples, which are commonly called the three Nephites. Okay, cue the X-Files theme. Okay, the reason that I like to have the X-Files theme song there is because I feel like in our culture, the three Nephites, as we call them, are commonly kind of like a like Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, cultural X-Files thing. You know, everyone's got a story about their aunt's grandma's best friend who, you know, was working on family history and got stumped. And then all of a sudden, these three guys showed up with a newspaper and it was exactly the information they needed. Or their car broke down in the middle of the desert and there was no one around. But all of a sudden, these three guys show up and they had gas for this person. And, you know, we've all kind of heard those stories. Well, maybe those stories are true maybe they're not. I think a lot of times we hear stories like that and they kind of take on an urban legend quality to them. Um, I will also tell you when I was a little girl, like I wanted so bad to see the three knee fights. The first time we had read this as a family, like I prayed like days. I had prayed. I was like, "Please let the three knee fights show up. I really want to see the three knee fights show up at my house. I really want to meet them." And I remember like going to the windows at my house, the front windows of my house that faced our street and our street was kind of at the bottom of a little short hill. And so I remember looking, sitting there at the front windows, looking up at the top of the hill of our street, waiting for the three Nephites to appear because I knew if I prayed in faith, those three Nephites would appear and I would get to see them. And that was my hope at the time. And as a little like eight-year-old, nine-year-old, whatever I was, did I really need to see the three Nephites? No, I really didn't. And if I had seen the three Nephites, would it have made a big impact? Like difference on my life, a big enough impact to change the course of my life? No, I would hope that I would pretty much be in the same place I am today. So I don't necessarily know that I needed to see them. I just really wanted to. But here we go. Let's talk about putting all the urban legend and myths and stuff aside. Let's talk about what we actually know about the three disciples. Okay. So this is from the Guide to the Scriptures article on Translated Beings. It says, Persons who are changed so that they do not experience pain or death until the resurrection to immortality. Okay, so that's from the official, like, Guide to the Scriptures Translated Beings article. But what do we actually actually know? Um, we know that they were blessed to never taste of death and shall live to behold all the doings of the Father unto the children of men, even until all things shall be fulfilled according to the will of the Father. So we know they'll never taste of death. They're going to live to behold all the amazing things that are going to happen even here in the latter days, okay? Continuing on, and this is 3 Nephi 28, 7 through 8, by the way. And then, when I shall come in my glory with the powers of heaven, there will be witnesses to that, and you shall never endure the pains of death. For when I shall come in my glory, you shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye from mortality to immortality. And then shall you be blessed in the kingdom of my Father, So we know that they have all these different things. Never taste of death. They won't have pain. They will be changed in a twinkling of an eye from mortality to immortality. They shall be again with Christ. They shall get to see all this amazing stuff happen. We also know that they ministered unto Mormon and his son Moroni. Because in Mormon 8.11 it says, Behold, my father and I have seen them, and they have ministered unto us. So when we have these scriptures about the three disciples and everything they went through and, you know, just their role and what what they are supposed to do to help the church, we have kind of an eyewitness account, I believe, that Mormon is writing. You know, and I think about Mormon and his son Moroni, Think about them like huddled up around a campfire with the three disciples there with them, huddled up all together. And Mormon and Moroni may be talking about some of the trials and the things that they're going through and how hard they were. And then the three disciples being with them and saying, hey, we understand. Here's some of the stuff that we've gone on, that, that's gone on with us that, you know, maybe we can give you some advice about, and maybe we can, you know, help you through it. Like we understand it's, it's been a really hard time for you. And so then in third Nephi 28, 18 through 23, when Mormon describes some of the stuff that they've been through, I have to think it's because he's heard it from them firsthand. This is what he says. They did go forth upon the face of the land and they did minister unto all the people, uniting as many to the church as would believe in their preaching baptizing them, as many as were baptized did receive the Holy Ghost. And they were cast into prison by them who did not belong to the church. And the prisons could not hold them, for they were rent in twain. And they were cast down into the earth, but they did smite the earth with the word of God, insomuch that by his power they were delivered out of the depths of the earth. And therefore they could not dig pits sufficient to hold them. And thrice they were cast into a furnace and received no harm. And twice they were cast into a den of wild beasts. And behold, they did play with the beasts as a child with a suckling lamb and received no harm. Okay, pause there. How fun that would be to play with like lions and stuff like that. I've always loved to watch big cats on the nature channel or whatever. And I'm always like, they're so fluffy. I would love to play with them. Although I know if I were to actually play with them right now, like they'd chew my head off. But they got to play with like these wild beasts. And I think that that was probably really cool. Okay, continuing on with the scriptures. And it came to pass that thus they did go forth among all the people of Nephi and did preach the gospel of Christ unto all the people upon the face of the land. And they were converted unto the Lord and were united into the church of Christ. And thus the people of that generation were blessed according to the word of Jesus. So it sounds like they did a lot of good. I also have to wonder about these people who were like you know, throwing them into prison and trying to bury them in the ground and throwing them into the wild beasts and throwing them into the fire. And like, it just not working each time. Like, what were these people thinking? Like, after a while, you would get to the point where you'd be like, um, so these guys are like unbreakable. Like, should, should I not be worried about this? I don't know. I don't know if I was one of the bad guys who was trying to hurt these guys and I can continually like fail at that task. I don't know. I would start wondering, like, what is up with these guys and be a little fearful, I think. Okay. So something you may have noticed is that as I'm talking here, I'm specifically describing them as three disciples. And that's specifically how Come Follow Me references them as well as the three disciples. Even though in our culture, the nomenclature that we consistently use to talk about these three individuals are the three Nephites. Well, there's a really interesting article from LDS Living. It's called What We've Been Getting Wrong About the Three Nephites. I'm going to read you something about it here. Starting out, it says, were the three Nephites really Nephites? And LDS Living article says, as I studied the verses in the Book of Mormon about the three disciples, I stumbled onto something intriguing. In the next four references, count how many times the three disciples are referred to as Nephites. Therefore, the true believers in Christ and the true worshipers of Christ, among whom the three disciples of Jesus should tarry. Two, but wickedness did prevail upon the face of the whole land, in it so much that the Lord did take away his beloved disciples, and the work of miracles and of healing did cease because of the iniquity of the people. k okay, example three. And there are none who do know the true God, save it be the disciples of Jesus, who did tarry in the land until the wickedness of the people was so great that the Lord would not suffer them to remain with the people. And whether they be upon the face of the land, no man knoweth. Okay, example four. Ether twelve seventeen, It was by faith that the three disciples obtained a promise that they should not taste of death, and they obtained not the promise until after their faith. So how many times the Book of Mormon refer to these three disciples as Nephites? The answer is zero. In fact, the three disciples are never referred to as Nephites anywhere in the Book of Mormon. So what does this have to do with the three disciples? Well, so there's... Pause. This is not the article. This is now Lexi talking. So there are times where just culturally, we apply names to things that not, are not necessarily in the scriptures, and then we kind of just like run with them. An example of this could also be Captain Moroni. Um, there's a scripture that says, and I think it's in Alma, like Alma 61, Alma 61 two, and it's Pahoran. Pahoran refers to him as Moroni, the chief captain over the army. Well, I guess we took that as a culture and we kind of went and started calling him Captain Moroni, and that's how we refer to him, although he's never in the Book of Mormon is referred to specifically with the title Captain Moroni. Okay, same thing with the three Nephites. We just assumed that they were Nephites. So what is the issue with this? Okay, well, the stories of the three Nephites are repeated so many times from our youth, I'm back in the article, by the way, that we overlook the fact that these titles are not actually recorded in the Book of Mormon. In 3 Nephi 6.14, so this is before Christ came, we learn about the demographics of the church a mere three years before Christ's appearance in the Americas. And thus there became a great inequality in all the land, insomuch that the church began to be broken up, yea, insomuch that in the thirtieth year the church was broken up in all the land, save it were among a few of the Lamanites, who were converted unto the true faith, and they would not depart for it from it. For they were firm, and they were steadfast, and they were immovable, willing with all diligence to keep the commandments of the Lord. Shortly before the Savior's appearance, the prophet Nephi performs incredible miracles, including including raising his brother from the dead, leading to the conversion of many in the land. The firm and steadfast and immovable Lamanites would have served as the backbone of the church, nurturing these new converts. Christ likely chose his twelve disciples from among both Lamanite and Nephite peoples. Well, does this knowledge change anything? The three disciples' actual lineage may not be as important as recognizing how our own implicit attitudes or biases influence the way we see others and even how we read the scriptures. Most of us equate righteousness with the Nephites and wickedness with the Lamanites, yet all of us can think of periods in the Book of Mormon where the Lamanites were living the gospel and the Nephites were not. Assuming that a per- person is righteous or wicked based on a single characteristic prevents us from fully seeing others as the Savior does. The distinction of Mormon and non-Mormon, or I guess member of the church and not member of the church, is often our modern-day equivalent of Nephite and Lamanite. We are truly separated by all manner of ites. Mormon witnessed how racism and division destroyed his people. He identified himself as a pure descendant of Lehi, not as a Nephite or Lamanite. If Mormon lived in our day, I do not believe that he would have identified himself, his own self, as a Mormon either." He shares one of my favorite proclamations in all scripture when he boldly declares, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Okay, so I know that that doesn't matter whether they were Nephites or not. They could have been Nephites. They could have been Lamanites. It doesn't matter. But I think it's interesting to me to go back in there and read and just like, I always assumed that they were Nephites because I always assumed that the Nephites are the good guys. But this article was absolutely right that that, good guy, bad guy thing switched several times. So they could be Lamanites. And at the end of the day, does it really matter? No, because there shouldn't be any manner of ites. And we're going to talk about how they were happier people when there was no manner of ites. So that's why Come Follow Me refers to them as the three disciples. And it's why I've decided I'm going to refer to them as the three disciples instead of the three Nephites. Okay. Now, Jeffrey R. Holland has a quote And it would not be an episode of The Savior Said without some J.R.H. So here's what he said, because I'm like, where are the three disciples today? He says, These three disciples continue in their translated state today, just as when they went throughout the lands of Nephi. At one point, Mormon was about to reveal their names to his latter-day readers, but he was forbidden by the Lord from doing so. Nevertheless, these three minister to Mormon and Moroni, and they are yet ministering to the Jew, the Gentile, and the scattered tribes of Israel, even all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. And that's from Jeffrey R. Holland, Christ in the New Covenant, the Messianic message of the Book of Mormon. So they're still here. They're still among us. We just don't know where. And it's interesting to me that um Mormon was about to reveal their names, but was prevented from doing so because... I can't imagine that they're still going by their given names. Um, I would think that maybe they're traveling around under aliases, just because, I guess, names like Mahanri Mori, Ankimur, thats I'm assuming it was something similar to that. Book of Mormon names tend to stand out a little bit, I would think. I don't know. Nephi's brother was named Sam, so um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, so... Yeah, that's that's the three disciples of Christ who decided to tarry upon the land a little longer. I just think they're really interesting. And I love it because it's kind of one of those fun things that I think our imaginations tend to run away with a little bit because I think we all think it would be very cool to have something from the Book of Mormon here in our modern day and to be able to interact with it. And to see someone who was witness to everything that Christ did did when he came to the Americas and be able to witness, you know, both the rise and the fall of the Nephites and the Lamanites and be able to talk to them firsthand. Like, how cool would that be? And I think that's why the three disciples capture our imagination so much. So, okay. Going on to the last section I want to talk about today from Come Follow Me. It says, conversion to Jesus Christ and his gospel lead to unity and happiness. It says, can you imagine what it would have been like to live in the years following the Savior's visit. It would have been awesome. Um, I think about, and this is not necessarily a good event. This is more of a bad bad event. But I think about like 9-11, September 11th, 2001, when the Twin Towers and the Pentagon were attacked. And I think about that. I think about how our country as a whole like came together, like this mass just coming together. I think about, you know... The feeling that we had this summer on the COVID-19 crisis and um, quarantine and stuff like that, where we really just came together, even virtually, you know, just that unity. And that was like bad stuff that inspired it. So think about Christ coming and his visit and how that would bring us all together, but in a more permanent way. Like, I think that that would be really cool. All right. So, but continuing off, come follow me. How did the people maintain this divine peace for so long, nearly 200 years? It really was. As you study 4 Nephi 1, 1 through 1-18, consider marking or noting the choices that people made in order to experience this blessed life. Okay, so here are the verses, and I'm going to emphasize some of the things that I underlined that kind of showed me um the choices that they were making, okay? So 1, and it came to pass that the 30 and 4th year passed away. And also the thirty and 5th, and behold, the disciples of Jesus had, underlining, formed a church of Christ in all the lands round about. And as many as did come unto them and did truly depend, repent of their sins were baptized in the name of Jesus and they did receive the Holy Ghost. Okay, so they formed his church, the church of Christ, and they spread it to the lands round about. They spread it everywhere that they went. And whoever came, it didn't matter who they were, whoever came. They gathered them into the flock. They helped them repent of their sins. They baptized them in the name of Jesus, and they received the Holy Ghost. It doesn't matter who you are. The gospel of Jesus Christ applies to you. And that's what they they learned. And that's how they treated the people that were around them. All right. And two, what I underlined was, "...the people were all converted unto the Lord upon all the face of the land, both Nephites and Lamanites, and there were no contentions or disputations among them." and every man did deal justly one with another. So there wasn't fighting. They gathered together, and no more were there divisions, but they were all united as one in Christ. And they didn't fight or didn't have any major disagreements, it seems like. Then in three, what I underlined was, and they had all things in common among them. Therefore, there were not rich and poor, bond and free, but they were all made free, and they were all partakers of the heavenly gift. Again, Everyone was welcome. Everyone was, you know, part of the church. And then they combined all their stuff together and no one was poor, no one was rich. They were all just together, saints in Christ. Then in four, um, it talks about the different years that pass away, but what I underlined was that there still continued to be peace in the land. So there was an absence of contention. In five, and there were great and marvelous works wrought by the disciples of Jesus, insomuch that they did heal the sick, raise the dead, caused the lame to walk and the blind to receive their sight, the deaf to hear, and all manner of miracles did they work among the children of men. And in nothing did they work miracles, save it were the name of Jesus. All right. So they're doing miracles. They're healing the sick. They're taking care of anyone who's hurt or in any way infirm, and they're taking care of them. So skipping down to 12. I'm going to skip to 12. And they did not walk anymore after the performance and ordinances of the law of Moses. But they did walk after the commandments which they had received from the Lord and their God, continuing in fasting and prayer, and in meeting together oft, both to pray and to hear the word of God. And it came to pass, 13, that there was no contention among all the people and all the land, but they were mighty miracles wrought among the disciples of Jesus. Are you counting, like, how many times it's saying that there was no contention? It was like, there's no contention, there's no contention, there's no contention. Like, we're on our second one right here. Okay. Then I want to skip down to 15. (laughs) Again, here we go. Um, It came to pass that there was no contention in the land because of the love of God, which did dwell in the hearts of the people. And there were no envyings, nor strifes, nor tumults, nor whoredoms, nor lyings, nor murders, nor any manner of lasciviousness. And surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. Okay, pause there. So can you imagine our Heavenly Father looking down upon this and just smiling? I bet it was so fun for him to see this. Um, these people come together and just the love that they had for each other and the way that they shared and that they cared about each other and they didn't have any fighting. It was probably a really nice time for him as well as the people. Okay, and in 17 it says, There were no robbers, no murderers, neither were there Lamanites nor any manner of ites, but they were one the children of Christ and heirs to the kingdom of God. And how blessed were they? So skipping to the end of 18, there was no contention in all the land. So four times it talked about there being no contention. Like four times it repeated that. So that tells me that if we are going to be a united people, what needs to evaporate from our culture is contention and fighting. So that's one of the things that needs to go away for us to be able to be united in one. Okay, so that was the really good stuff about Christ's visit. Well, then, after about 200 years, they fall away. And that's the next section in Come Follow Me. Wickedness leads to division and sorrow. And it says, sadly, the Zion society described in 4th Nephi eventually unraveled. As you read 4th Nephi 1, 19 through 49, look for attitudes and behaviors that caused the society to fall apart. Okay, so here we go. Starting in 23 is where I started to see it. It says, and now I am Mormon, would that you should know that the people they had multiplied in so much, they were spread across the face of all the land, and they had become exceedingly rich because of their prosperity in Christ. So that stood out to me because I'm like, well, just a couple verses before we had heard that there was no rich or poor, where now they're all of a sudden they're all rich. Okay, so that is a little bit different, right? And now in this 201st year, there began to be among them those who were lifted up in pride such as the wearing of costly apparel and all manners of fine pearls and of the fine things of this world. And from that time forth, they did have their goods and their substance no more common among them. So when it gets to the point where we start having pride involved, where we start thinking we're better than other people, that contention kind of comes back in. So a side note, One of the things I kind of studied this week because I was interested in the concept of pride and how pride did cause this downfall is I started looking at like, what's the psychology behind pride? And psychologists, our modern day psychologists say that there's actually two kinds of pride. So there's actually a reason why we have that emotion. And the good wholesome reason reason for having the emotion of pride is because it motivates us to keep doing good things. Like an example would be if I have a kid at school who's learning how to tie their shoe and they really worked on it really, really hard and they finally got it. And I could say, oh, I'm so proud of you. And the kid is so proud of themselves. It motivates them to continue practicing that skill and getting better at it so that it's something that they can do. Um, If they're learning to write their letters and they figure out how to write a word and all of a sudden they're really proud of it, it motivates them to continue learning and to continue doing more. That's great. That's good pride. But then when we get to like the arrogant, selfish kind of pride that we're talking about here in the Book of Mormon, um, like the, the enmity towards God is kind of how President Benson has described it, where it's I can, like, I'm using a very juvenile example, but I can tie my own shoes and you can't tie your shoes yet, so I'm better than you are. Do you see? Do you see the difference between the two? Um, So it's that selfish, like, pitting yourself against somebody else pride that I think tends to be our undoing. Okay, I'm going back into the scriptures now. This is in 26. Watch for those people pitting themselves against each other. And they began to be divided unto classes. And they began to build up churches unto themselves to get gain, and began to deny the true church of Christ. 27. There are many churches which profess to know the Christ, and yet they did deny the more parts of his gospel, insomuch that they did receive all manner of wickedness, and did administer that which was sacred unto him to whom it had been forbidden, because of unworthiness. And the church did multiply exceedingly because of iniquity and because of the power of Satan who did it to get hold upon their hearts. Okay, pause there. So when we started out, we saw that the church multiplied exceedingly because of the faith of the people, because of the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now in 28, we're seeing that it's multiplying exceedingly because of iniquity, because of the power of Satan who did get hold upon their hearts. 29, there was another church which denied the Christ, and they persecuted the true church of Christ. And uh, then it goes on. Hope and our friends, the three disciples, make an appearance again. This is where they talk about, you know, they were throwing them into prisons, and they were burying them in the ground. And that's where this whole part comes in. All right, going into 34. Nevertheless, the people did harden their hearts. For they were led by many priests and false prophets to build up many churches and to do all manner of iniquity. And they did smite upon the people of Jesus. Important part here, though, it says, but the people of Jesus did not smite again. Okay. I also want to make a point that it talks a lot about churches here. Um, and I think it's easy for us to start pointing fingers at other denominations and saying, look, you're not a true church of, church of Christ. And, um, try and identify like, hey, are they fighting against the true church of Christ? And, you know, it's really easy for us to point fingers at other churches. But I think the important thing to know is that it's not always churches that take on these roles. Sometimes it can be corporations. It can be organizations. It can be groups of people who are affiliated with the same beliefs. It doesn't even have to be in a religious context. It can be in a social context who are fighting against those who are standing for truth and righteousness. Okay? Um, so it's constantly changing. It's not just one established. It's not even established church. It can be a constantly changing, established group of people, whatever it is, whoever's fighting against the truth. That is... Kind of like what these churches are representing. Does that make sense? Okay. Now thirty-five I think is the key to all of this. All of this. Here we go. And now it came to pass in this year, yea, in the 230 and first year, there was a great division among the people. Y'all, when I read that verse this week, like I got goosebumps, I'm getting goosebumps again. Because if I had to describe our country right now, I would say there was a great division division among the people. That terrified me because I'm like, this is probably the closest I have ever seen our society to mirroring what was happening in the Book of Mormon. There's a huge division among us right now. Like it's it's hard. It's a hard time. And it's just gonna get worse and worse, I I feel. Um, you know, we have an election coming up and that's gonna tear our country apart even more. And then past that I just feel like we are kind of on a downward spiral and I feel like the division is going to get wider and wider and it's just, it's a scary time. It's really scary. So with that uplifting thought, guys, I'm going to end this episode. Actually, no, I'm not going to end the episode on that thought because it is so terrifying. What I want to end the episode on is that if this is not the end, there is a division. We are in a downward spiral, but we know that Christ will come again and we know who wins in the end. And if things aren't looking up, then it's not the end. I want to end on that note. So Christ is good. God is good. He loves us and he's always there for us. I love you guys. Have a great week. Bye y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. You can also find me on Instagram. Comments or questions, email me at the said at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.